It's so great to have you this morning. Thank you for braving the drizzly, awful weather. Glorious weather. Your praise, Lord, ever on our lips. And today we're talking about love, and to tee us off, we're going to have Ali Salami read for us the Bible's love sonnet. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if you would, let's go old school and stand with me out of reverence for God's word. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to continue our conversation today, but today, often when we gather on Sunday mornings, we have some walking papers. There's some impact report. There's a to-do list or a to-do impact for us. This morning, not as much so. This morning is a contemplation. This morning, I want us to meditate on something I think we're all going to agree on. I mean, this is universal. Even if you're not particularly spiritual, you're going to agree today. But we're going to drill down on it and circle around it a bit because I think we need to really see it, and we need to see it in its true light. I think we also need to see that part of the reason we agree so readily about what we're going to be talking about this morning, it's unusual in the history of human thinking for a room like this to agree so readily with what we're about to say. I'm convinced that we agree with it to the degree that we do because our culture has been profoundly influenced, Western society has been so profoundly influenced by the thinking and teaching and life of Jesus Christ and his followers. But this is a radical, revolutionary idea, and we want to tease it out a little bit. So let's lay it out. If you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this. Love is a stinking big deal. So love is a big deal because love is the way our connections happen. If we're going to have connections that meet our design specification, if we're going to have the kind of connections that really satisfy us, then that's going to happen because we exercise love. So for three weeks, we've been in a conversation about connection. Let me summarize the first two weeks. The first week, we made the point that connection to others is essential for us. It's, it's fundamental. It's who we are. It's how we were designed. 
Uh, then last week we talked about a particular kind of connection. If you're here, you might remember, we talked about the church. We said that we need church. That's not how we always think about it, but we need church. We said that family connections aren't enough. And that's important for us to hear because suburban northern Virginians, we're into our family. For many of us, we moved where we moved because of our family. Great schools for the kids and places for them to play, and we could get a little bigger house. We're into our family, and our, our families are satisfying, and they are loving connections, but we made the point that they're not enough. And for some of us, we don't even have that kind of family support here. So even if you're 39 with two and a half kids, your family connections, even if they're healthy and strong, are not enough to satisfy our design specifications. We need a church. And then we made an important observation. We said that the New Testament defines church as a relationship network of people who have been called together by God. The church is a relationship network of people who have been called together by God. It's not an institution, and it's not a building. It's a relationship network of people following Christ, and we need that. Over the first two weeks of this conversation, we said that our discussion of connection was going to focus ultimately on love, and so we're going to turn our attention that direction today. And Allie kicked off for us by reading 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible's love sign. And this passage, as many of you know, is often used at weddings because it's a beautiful exposition of love. But it may surprise you to know that in the original context, Paul wasn't addressing marriages, but he was addressing relationships within the church specifically. Leading up to this passage, for instance, Paul was answering a question that this group of followers in the ancient city of Corinth had a, about a specific spiritual matter, actually a list of questions. And in chapter 12, he gets to a question that goes to the heart of their gatherings and their meetings together when the church was all together, you know, like this. He started chapter 12 by saying this, now, concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. Here's the deal. Most scholars believe that this Corinthian church was ancient Pentecostal church. A few of you have come from Pentecostal backgrounds. Many of you have visited Pentecostal church, so you know something about what this means. Often in Pentecostal churches, that you know, the, the worship is super expressive, and there are particulars about Pentecostal thinking, theology, and worship. Those may have been in evidence here in this ancient church. In the case of the Corinthians, they seem to have had a very expressive worship style, and they frequently experienced dramatic things in their worship and in their gatherings like speaking in tongues and prophetic words. Explaining that is for another day, but that's a part of how our experience with God rolls out for many of us who are followers of Christ. Plus, it seems like, and this is important, it seems like that they believe that these kinds of expressions were somehow more spiritual than other kinds of spiritual experiences and expressions. At least some of them felt this way. And within the church, there was this growing divisiveness as some of the people were separating themselves, even elevating themselves above others in the community because of these experiences. So in chapter 12, Paul begins to address this, and he says, look, in essence, he says, you're united with one another. You're not united the way someone is united to another member in an HOA or in a hunt club. You're united to one another like one part of a physical body is united to another part of a physical body. You need one another. You cannot do without one another, and no one of you is any more important than any other one of you. Then he ends chapter 12 by saying, 
what Allie read for us at the very beginning. Now, I want to show you a more excellent way, an even better way than the way you've been doing it. I want to show you a better way of relating to one another than the way you've been relating to one another. In other words, I will show you how to be what I'm talking about being. I'm going to show you how to be this body, how to have those kind of connections. I'm going to show you the way to be connected to one another rightly. And what is his answer? Love. Love is the way right connections happen. And a neighbor in a sister, in a child, in a marriage, in a church. Right connections happen because of love. I want you to try this exercise, just a thought experiment. Some of you will remember these kinds of exercises from high school English class or certainly SAT tests. If you've taken SAT tests in high schoolers, if you haven't, it's coming. Sorry about that. So think about this. Love is to connection as blank is to blank. And I'm seriously asking you to make up your own. Love is to connection as blank is to blank. No, I don't want everybody to answer out, but do this exercise for yourself. Think for a sec. Let me give you some examples just to get your brain going again about analogous statements. Horse is to old societies as car is to modern society. Or tree is to leaf as flower is to petal. Let's try that again. Tree is to leaf as flower is to, okay. Cat is to kitten as woman is to girl. Yes. So love is to connection as blank is to blank. What is the nature of that relationship? Let me give you a couple to think about. I'm going to say love is to connection as sawdust is to particle board. Particle board is made of sawdust. Let me give you another one. Love is to connection as English is to my verbal communication. It's the medium of my communication. My verbal communication happens because I speak English. My verbal communication, if you say, Ed, tell Diane, uh, what you guys are doing for dinner tonight and do not speak English, I'm lost. Love is a stinking big deal because it's how our connection happens. It's the way we connect to one another if we want to rightly connect. Now, human relationships can be based on fear. They can be held together by manipulation or by mutual need or by common experience, but our relationships cannot be the kind of relationships that nurture us if they're based on any of those things. In order for real connections to happen between us, they must be based on love. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but it is, and let me illustrate why. For many of us, our relationship network, for many of us, consists essentially of our family and our work. So let's imagine that your family relationships are held together by love. But it's not hard to imagine that your work relationships are held together by something other than love. You don't usually meet for a work meeting at 9 in the morning and have your boss stand up or you're the boss and you stand up and you begin the meeting by saying, I just love you guys. Let's talk together about how much we love one another. Let's affirm our love together this morning. That's not usually how it works at work. 
Usually what happens is the work relationships are held together by mutual purpose, and that can be exhilarating. There is some connection that happens, but this is not a strong enough glue to support our design needs. So the ache we sometimes feel, the loneliness, is no surprise. We need connection, and our family, which is essential and awesome, is not enough. We need loving connections. And the way to build the kinds of connections that we need is love. So then Paul, and here's the payoff for us this morning, then Paul goes a little bit negative, and he tells us what this means. And he says a couple of profound things. So let's let these stick this morning. The first profound thing he tells us is that that if you don't have loving connections in your life, the exercise of your religion is probably empty. If you don't have loving connections in your life, the exercise of your religion is probably empty. As I said, these Corinthians were ancient Pentecostals, and they seem to have been elevating the exercise of speaking in tongues and prophetic words above other kinds of spiritual expressions. So Paul chooses these experiences, the speaking in tongues and the prophetic words, and he says, even these are nothing without love. So take what you think is the height of spiritual experience, nothing without love. Now, no matter what form your religious experience takes, it may be Pentecostal worship, or it may be cool contemporary vibe, or it may be Catholic mass, no matter how awesome your prayer group, no matter how terrific your Bible study, if you don't have loving connections in your life, your religion is empty. This is a profoundly surprising thing for, for a professional religious guy to say, but it's true. The point of Jesus' work in your life is not to make you more religious. Pause, I'm going to say that again. The point of Jesus' work in your life is not to make you more religious. Jesus is after making you more loving. And the point of all of our religion is to encourage us to be more loving. If your religious exercise does not encourage that, then it's empty. Now, honestly, this isn't a problem for many of us. Most suburban northern Virginians are not religious enough for their religion to get in the way. But there may be some of you who are practicing religion in a way that separates you from people. And that doesn't encourage you to be more loving. Some of you, in the way you express your religion, you just tend to over-spiritualize everything. For some of you, your religion actually helps you not be vulnerable to others. You've always got some ready, easy, spiritual answer. Those of us who experience you always feel like you're preaching to us and not just talking to us. Or it may be that some of you have stayed away from religion because you think that's the way it is. You have a wrong-headed notion of what Jesus wants to do in your life. Remember, the aim of God's work in our lives is not to make us behave better. The aim of God's work in our life is not that we would know more of the Bible or that we would pray better. I've often had some of you say, oh, Don't ever ask me to come up and do what Allie did this morning, and please don't ever ask me to pray. I could never do that. I understand that. Some of you are nervous about being in front of a crowd like this, but the aim is not to help you pray better. The aim of God's work in your life is that you would love God more and love others more and more and better. If you don't have loving connections in your life, the exercise of your religion is probably empty. The second negative thing he says is even more impactful for me, and it may be for some of you. He says, in essence, if you don't have loving connections in your life, your ethical standards are pointless. 
In fact, your attempts to be a good person are probably pointless. Okay, let's explain this by backing up a 10,000-foot view and zoom over ancient Palestine with a helicopter. Palestine in the time of Jesus was a wild and woolly place. Basically, the nation of Israel, if they could even be called a nation, had been under foreign rule since about 333 B.C. That's over 300 years before Jesus' birth. When Alexander the Great, some of you remember that from ancient history in high school or in college, Alexander the Great conquered much of the ancient world. He conquered the ancient Near East and Palestine as well. And so life in Palestine was for a couple hundred years with about an 80-year reprieve, it was an exercise in figuring out how to relate to foreign powers. What are we going to be and who are we even? A couple of significant strains of thinking developed, and they exercised considerable influence over the culture for many centuries. So there were those who considered themselves traditionalists, and there were those who considered themselves progressives. And if you read the New Testament, the traditionalists are often represented by the Pharisees. They had a pretty traditional view of things, and the progressives were often represented by the Sadducees. And let me just give you a a quick chart of a couple things to show you how this teases out. Let's look, first of all, at the governing political principle. So for those who were traditionalists, the governing political principle was self-rule. How do we get to the place, once again, where the king of Israel is the king of Israel? And he's not bowing down to any foreign power, and there are no foreign tanks on our soil, and Rome has not built a base somewhere outside of Jerusalem. For the traditionalists, the governing political principle, the the way they thought about politics was, how do we rule ourselves? For the progressives, the governing political philosophy was, how do we get along best with the ruling powers? Now, this was a tricky game in the 200s B.C. and into the 100s B.C. After Alexander died, his reign, his rule, his kingdom, his authority was kind of divided amongst his family, and that lasted for a few hundred years. And some of you may remember these names. There were the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And one or the other of them would rise or fall, and they were sort of centered on either side of Palestine. So the trick among the progressives for the, the couple of hundred centuries before Jesus was to figure out whether the, to align their wagon to the Seleucids or the Ptolemies. And if you went the wrong way, you got axed. But if you went the right way, you know, you could be ascendant. So the, the governing political principle was how do we manage, how do we get along with the ruling powers? Because we're not going to p- compete with the Greeks, and then ultimately we're not going to compete with the Romans. But we can navigate our way so that we are essentially our own little self-ruled pocket. And they did so effectively. Interestingly, Jesus is asked these kinds of questions in his ministry. And his answer was often shocking, surprising. He found a way to say, neither. That's not the point. For Jesus, the governing political concern was personal, and individual integrity. So, should we pay taxes, Jesus? Well, look, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. Repeatedly, Jesus found a way to make the crowd say, holy smokes, we've never heard teaching like this, and with such authority. 
This next line is even more to our point this morning. The governing ethical concern for the traditionalists was obedience to the law. This is why you find the Pharisees going, what? Your disciples have not washed their hands in a week. You are healing someone on the Sabbath? That breaks nine Sabbath regulations that we've been following for the last 150 years. The governing ethical concern for the traditionalists was behavior, obedience to the law. For the progressives, it was a very different thing. For the progressives, it was, you sound like an idiot. Don't you realize we are this little backwater, nowhereville, grow up. This is the modern world. So for the progressives, the governing ethical concern was tolerance of other ways of thinking and behavior. We've got to get along. Let's preserve the worship of Yahweh. But in these unessential things, we've got to get along. We can't be constantly doing battle with the culture. It does no good. Sound familiar to anybody? You recognize these strains perhaps even in our culture. But Jesus, to all of our amazement, said something different from both. He disappointed the conservatives, and the liberals couldn't understand him. For Jesus, the governing ethical concern was love. I want you to understand that love as a governing ethical concern was a wildly radical, highly charged idea. This is part of why Jesus was so hard for his listeners to get a read on. He was so different from the cacophony of voices that they typically heard. So you've heard it said, blah, 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 but I tell you love. You've heard it said, blah, 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 I tell you love. He gathered his disciples one day and he said to them, hey, I've got a new command for you. Oh, 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 I bet I know what it is. I bet it's don't borrow and never give it back because that happens to me constantly with you, James. No, 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 I bet I know what it is. No, 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 I bet it's don't kidnap. Moses completely forgot about that and my sister got kidnapped. We didn't see her for four years. No, the new command is love one another. Wait, what? What do you mean? Are you saying that that's up there with the Moses stuff? No, 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 no. No, I'm telling you everything Moses said can be summarized in that. Love one another. And we should recognize that this idea doesn't sound so radical to us. But again, I think that's mostly because our ethics, let's don't miss this. Our ethics have been so dramatically shaped by a Christian worldview. To most of human thinking, this is a crazy governing ethical principle. So some of you, by nature, by heart, just by your leaning, by your wiring, you tend to be conservative. And you want us to be stronger about telling people what they shouldn't do. You want us to come out strong. You want Ed and the elders on the news some Friday night saying, the people in Dulles South, they ought not to X, Y, or Z, ever Z. Maybe we should be stronger at times. But the governing principle for our ethics is not obedience. The governing principle for our ethics is love. Parents, the goal of your parenting is not to teach your children to behave. The goal is to help them feel love and to teach them to give and receive love. Now that may include lessons on behavior, to be sure, but good behavior is not the governing principle. Some of you 
ten, by your wiring, just by your makeup, and then by what you've read and your tendency, you tend to be liberal. And you want us to be more tolerant. Ed, why in the world should anybody care what goes on in somebody else's bedroom? It just doesn't matter. Let's just get along. How in the world can it be that the culture in general is more tolerant than we are? And maybe we should be more tolerant at times. But that's not the governing principle of our ethics. The governing principle of our ethics is love. And listen, if I know someone who thinks that they can fly, I know I don't have wings, but I just believe I can fly. That's who I am. You don't understand, that's who I am. I'm going to go jump off a cliff. Well, tolerance might say, okay, I'm with you. I affirm who you are and what you believe. But I would suggest that love would say, don't do it. You can't fly. Love is a stinking big deal. So if you don't have loving connections in your life, then your ethical standards are pointless. If you have ongoing, for instance, conflict in a friendship, or in your marriage. It's almost always because one or both of you is not loving effectively. And that conflict will certainly bleed into every area of your life. It will affect everything. You can come to Gateway and give huge amounts of money, and we hope you do, even though you're not in a good place. We hope you continue to do that. You can demonstrate incredible faith that makes all of us admire and applaud you, but if your connections are not held together by love, if you are not growing in your capacity to give and receive love, then chances are your good deeds and your faith expressions are pointless. Love is a stinking big deal. As I said, this is a contemplation. I don't know what the takeaway is for you. If you miss everything else, I want you to remember this. Love is a stinking big deal. It's the point of everything. All right, before we end today, we have to recognize the most profound insight that rolls out of the life and teaching of Jesus is this. This is a big one. Love is the way God approached the world and each of us. That's big. God approaches us by the mechanism of love. He doesn't stand at a distance. He doesn't approach in judgment or in dread. He doesn't even approach in power and dominance. He approaches the world and each of us in love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes that will have life and have it full. Pastor Tim Keller offered this amazing illustration. I want to end with this. <laughs> Listen to this. Keller said, Dorothy Sayers wrote a series of detective novels focused on her fictional character, Lord Peter Whimsey. I've never read Dorothy Sayers, but I imagine several of you have. Sayers' creation, Whimsey, was an aristocrat detective from the 1930s who solved all kinds of crimes. She wrote a whole series of stories and novels about Lord Peter. Then about halfway through her whimsy detective novels, a woman suddenly shows up in the novels. Sayers' new character is named Harriet Vane. 
She's a female mystery writer and one of the very first women to get through Oxford. Harriet and Peter fall in love, and until that point in the series, Whimsy was an unhappy, broken bachelor until Harriet Vane shows up and her love starts to heal his broken soul. Can you see where I'm going? It's interesting because Dorothy Sayers, like her fictional creation, was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Like Harriet Vane, Dorothy Sayers was a, a writer of mystery novels. Dorothy Sayers looked at her character, Lord Peter Whimsey, and saw that he needed someone to help him out. So who did she put in there? A detective novelist, a woman, and one of the first women to go through Oxford. Who was that? She put herself into her own stories. She looked into the world that she had created, and she fell in love with the chief character, Peter Whimsey, and she wrote herself into that story so she could heal him. This is how God approached us in Christ. He wrote himself into his own story in order to heal us, in order to love us. Love is a stinking big deal. Let's pray. Father, I don't know how you have stirred this morning or within whom, but I sense your presence here. So we linger with you a moment opening ourselves up to your love. We know, Lord, from testimonies of saints who have gone before us, and some of us know from our own experience that when your love gets a hold of us, everything changes. Our hearts are lifted and problems dissolve. Our thinking is altered. And we, amazingly, become more like you. Our capacity to give love, our capacity to receive love is enhanced. And that's what we long for this morning. We long to experience that because love is a stinking big deal and we want to be able to do that among those around us. Honestly, Lord, we want to be able to do it for our own good because we need to meet our design satisfactions. We need to meet our specifications. But Lord, we also want to do it for others who are around us. So we offer today the parts of our personality that are not consistent with love. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We ask you to forgive us. For many of us, Lord, this is the first time we've been still all week and we, and we are, we're still before you. Speak, your servants are listening. Beyond forgiveness, we also ask for direction. There are those of us who need direction about how to be more loving toward our children. How to be loving toward our children. 
We don't even know what that looks like. For some of us, Lord, we need direction on how to be more loving toward our parents. For some of us, we need help and we need direction on how to be more loving toward the really difficult person who's in our life and is not going away. you give that because love is a stinking big deal and ultimately we ask that you would get rid of the blockage that prevents us from loving you so that we could offer you free and wholehearted love and praise and unashamed devotion Hearts completely set free. So hear us, Lord. Hear your church gathered here on Tall Cedars Parkway. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. All right, thanks for pausing for a few minutes to contemplate. Is that our time this morning with a song? Let's stand together. Bring up the verse of unashamed love. You're calling me to lay aside the worries of my day. So he's not, look, he's not asking us to do something that's a burden for us. He's not wanting to add something to your checklist. He's asking you to come and say, I'm done with that. And he's going to say, fine. To quiet down my busy mind, find a hiding place. You're worthy. Right, let's try this together. You, um, worthy, you are worthy of a childlike faith, of my honest praise. Good stuff. Let's try it.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love because ultimately that's what it's all about. We pray, Lord, that we, as we walk back to our jobs, as we go back to our schools, that we can demonstrate the love that you've shown us to those who need it so desperately. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.